0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. This is our Good Friday message by Pastor Terry King. and uh, I have the privilege of being able to share the Word of God with you this morning and uh, to just bring you to that place where we remember Christ's death. We remember his uh, resurrection. But today is a very interesting day and... Um, a day that we, we do feel a sadness and there's a, a, a sort of a grief that comes over us, maybe not all of you, but I find that it's a really overwhelming time and also not over overwhelming in the sense that it overwhelms me to the point that I'm, you know, not, not coping, but it's overwhelming just to really, really consider what Christ has done for us. And this morning I just want to share some, some thoughts that I have uh, put together to be able to to bring you to that place where hopefully if you have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, that you would consider that today be the day that you would give your life to Christ. Um, maybe the Holy Spirit has been working on your heart and in your life, and uh, today could be just that day. Many a testimony of people who have come to a service on, on a, a Good Friday or even a Resurrection Sunday and have really considered the claims that Jesus Christ has made. And uh, then they believe in him, and uh, you know that 's exciting stuff; it really, really is it excites my heart anyway and so this morning, I just want to um, to share some some things with you that I believe would bring us to that lovely place of of uh, just adoring Christ and thanking him so much in our hearts for what he has done for us so last Sunday was pub Sunday, and uh, I remember Karen in particular when she was leading us through the worship that she opened up that story of Palm Sunday. And um, I remember when I, was, when I was at my church in Mergen in, in, uh, in the South Burnett in Queensland here, uh, I remember um, uh, celebrating Palm Sunday. It was very important that we did for some reason. And um, I remember coming to Sunday school. It was over 60 years, something years ago now. But when I started going to Sunday school, we would always have... And for those who are a little bit older would maybe remember in their, in their uh, Sunday school days, sand trays. No? Yes, some of you do. That's good. Yeah, and we used to have these sand trays and we would enact all these little things on the sand tray. We would do the Exodus, we would do Joshua and Caleb and we would do all sorts of things. And of course, when it came to uh, Good Friday or Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday we'd often have these sand trays on which they would decorate with little palm trees and, and uh, little, uh, little um, you know, uh, models of stuff and so on. And I, I quite enjoyed them, to be honest, and it brought back incredible memories for me. And then when I became a Sunday school teacher, guess what? I used the sand trays as well. And, of course, in our church, with the Methodist church at that time, <coughs> we uh, had um, palms all around the church, to remind us that it was palm sunday. And so palm sunday can actually be portrayed as a very joyous and a very exciting time. And for me it was. It was it was quite a a, a happy time to be together and I got that storyline where it was a happy time. And uh and so there was a celebration, there was a big crowd. Uh there was uh when we went through the story, the waving of palm branches, the shouting of hosanna. And Jesus riding in on the donkey and his triumphant entry, and uh, and and so it it was it was quite a place of of uh, you know joy. But in verse forty one of Luke chapter uh, nineteen, uh, let me just go there. In verse forty one, and it says, and when he, that is Jesus, approached the city, and he saw the city, and wept. Over it i 'll get back to that point, but it really, really struck home to me that somehow, when I was a kid, I missed the full importance of Palm Sunday, but it was still something to celebrate. But I want to just go back to that place later on. I just want to have a look at this amazing biblical scenario: the route that Jesus took, the donkey on which he sat the season of Passover, all these details pointed to one thing only, to one important thing, and that was that Christ, Jesus himself, was the Messiah. We noted that if we looked at the content in Luke chapter 19, it talks about how Jesus went past, in verse 37, he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And the Mount of Olives is not only just mentioned there in the New Testament, but also it comes up in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 to 5. And uh, that is where Jesus is, uh, where it's predicted that is the location for the Messiah's return and appearance. Oftentimes, and Pastor Sean made reference of this last time, last week I think it was, that kings would procure a donkey to ride into the city. They could come in and there was a beautiful stallion. They maybe could come in on a chariot. But often in, in times when it was to emphasise their authority, they would actually come in on a donkey. You would think it would be the reverse, wouldn't you? But it was a way of a humble authority. And so he would ride in. they would ride in on the donkey. And then we look at the Passover and the Passover celebrates the Israelites' freedom from the slavery that they had encountered in Egypt. And the Jews deeply desired, desired to be free from Rome by a Messiah or by some saviour to get them out of the mess. And so are there many times in our lives that we would just trust that that Messiah that we believe in would just get us out of messes. Sometimes we get them in, get into messes ourselves. But there are some that come our way that, not often, are something that we have, you know, wanted to embrace. But they were there. And so the crowd worshipped him like a king. The disciples laid down their cloaks, and I think Sean made reference to it last week. That it's almost like the red carpet, putting down a red carpet. You know the celebrities and, and uh, the film stars and all those sort of people and, and not only them but there's the Queen and there's the, the Prime Ministers and, and other people and they lay out the red carpet. I don't know why I didn't get one this morning. I'm not sure. Maybe it's still rolled up somewhere. Um, but however, the disciples lay down their cloaks and the crowd makes a huge political spectacle by waving palm branches and actually saying, as recorded in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I believe that deep down somehow that these men and these disciples wanted to have some sort of revolt. It was a time when they were gathered together. It was an opportunity for all the people to come to one place. And there was probably that 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 behind-the-scenes action where they wanted to revolt in some way because they were not happy with the system. They wanted, to, wanted Jesus to actually rise up and to overthrow the Roman government. But they were going to be sadly disappointed because that's not what his intent was. And we know by the scriptures that it was certainly different. And the Passover often stirred up strong political hopes in very common people. And thousands of visiting Jews would actually come into Jerusalem and crowd the streets of Jerusalem, and there would be tension. There'd be this idea of a revolt, conversations going around, and uh, little groups of people. I'm just maybe grasping at a lot of straws there, but I would tend to think that from what history says that there were things that were happening within the lives of the Jews who were so discontent with what was round about them. Probably a little bit how we feel today, maybe. And yet, I think that there was an event that took place probably around about 4 BC, actually, and it was uh, a very ugly and a very tragic spectacle, a very tragic thing that happened. And um, there was a, uh, a the, the son of Herod, of King Herod, whose name was Archelaus, and he unleashed his troops when there was discontent, and there was tension, and there was revolt. That he unleashed his troops during the Passover, and uh, killed about three thousand people. And so I would say that some of the Jews and some of the uh, the, uh, the religious rulers of that day were nervous of Rome's fury, of Rome's uh, intent on on keeping everything. Low and sort of going about normal type of living, but there, when they were together, and Jesus walking in and coming in on the donkey, riding in on the donkey, uh, they um, they called out the high, you know, the the, the Pharisees and the, the people that were there, and they called out to Jesus and they said, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples, get them into line." And typical of Jesus, you know, he didn't address that particular question, but he did in another way. You would think that maybe there would be some engagement of a conversation. Well, you sort it out. You're the leaders or whatever. But no, of course, that wouldn't happen. But And then Jesus actually replies. And if you had a look at the verse, it says, in just in um, in, in verse 40, it says, I tell you, that if these became silent, those that are talking about the disciples, that the stones will actually cry out. And what an interesting comment, what an interesting reply to them saying, you rebuke your disciples, get them into order. And then in verse 41 it says, and when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. It wasn't just a couple of tears, I believe, trickling down his face. I don't think it was just a couple of little sobs. I would sense that by the way that this is occurring, that when it says wept, it meant wept. I know that there's that record of Jesus and that's two words, Jesus wept when Lazarus was when he was at the Lazarus' tomb. But this is a very significant verse here it's where he actually weeps over the city and so there would have been this this maybe even sobbing just this emotion raw emotion that was stirring up in his spirit and then he prophesied of the destruction of the city of jerusalem he, Jesus, was not going to fulfil that, what's, what the crowds were really hoping for. And in the period of 66-73, what he actually declared happened. And Jerusalem was destroyed by their enemies, totally razed, The temple and everything else that belonged to that city, a proud city, very significant city. You'd understand then why Jesus really did weep. This was the beginning of the emotional journey that Jesus was actually going through. And often Pastor Sean makes reference to the fact that have we really considered those who are outside these walls? Have we considered the people that live in the Redlands and the ones that are in the city of Brisbane? And and when we consider it, would it bring us to that place, and I'm not trying to heap anything on you, but would it bring us to that place where we'd have that raw emotion for the lives and the hearts of those people that live in our city? And Jesus loved that city of Jerusalem, and he actually took on a, a sort of a, this is his beloved place. And a lot happened in that city. But he could then foresee what was going to happen and sure enough it did. And we need to have, and especially on this day when we gather together on Good Friday believing and knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us, what emotion do we have concerning those who are lost that are living outside the life and the will of Christ? And after that particular entry into Jerusalem, did Jesus go to the Jerusalem Marriott Hotel Resort and just lay back and have a chill out until the time came that he was to go and uh, and to face his crucifixion? Of course not. There wasn't any such thing, but however, no, there was a, an intensity, an intensity that actually developed. If you read the scriptures from chapter 20, chapter chapter 21, there was this intensity. You would just have hoped that Jesus was prepared, was able to just sort of sit back and then knowing that there would be this time when he would have to face the cross, that he would have been able to chill out. But the intensity of all that was happening around about him and if you looked at it, there was different things. His authority was questioned. He was giving parables out. Lots of things were happening. And so it... It approached his crucifixion, and the following chapters reveal that. However, not that they are not important, but I wish to take you to chapter 22. In chapter 22 of the of the book of Luke, it begins with two different agendas. Firstly, the Passover was approaching, and then secondly, the chief priests and the scribes were plotting to kill Jesus, and to actually add to this scenario. Satan, as it says, entered into Judas and he went away to discuss how he would betray Jesus. I mean, I I start to you know, as I get older in my faith, I I tend to want to develop a whole lot of stuff in my thinking about what Jesus went through. He's not just some person that is a you know a figurehead of some sort, but there's something so deep and so wonderful and so gracious and so compassionate and so loving that was developing within that, that man's life. And he surely was the son of God. And, uh, you know, what an awful scenario it is in many ways. But into these dramatic events, the actual sacrificial lamb himself, and that is Jesus, asked his disciples, Peter and John, to go and prepare the Passover and to find a lamb and to have it sacrificed. And in verse 13 of chapter 22, it records, and they did depart, and being told the instructions, I just added that bit myself, and found everything just he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And, um, I mean, we're a little bit different. The Keen family, maybe, a lot of people on... Friday, eat fish. Uh, maybe it's a Catholic tradition or it's a tradition that's come into into our Western society. And there's reasons for why that happened. I'm not going to go into that. But we as the Keen family actually eat lamb on Good Friday. And, um, yep. um, and so it sort of reminds us of the Passover. And not that we're Jews and not that we're sort of going into that intense way of looking at it. But it means a lot to us and to that we celebrate it and we have this time when we eat the lamb, on, good, on Easter Sunday, we actually have fish. And when we were pastoring churches in, in dare I say it, Ulladulla, of course I have to say it, <laughs> in Ulladulla and also in Kolak, and, 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 uh, and we, would, we would then go to the beach on Sunday morning. As we were on, we, at Ulladulla, it was a beautiful harbour and beach, and then at uh, Colac, we were on Lake Colac, which was a, an old uh, crater, a volcanic crater, and it became a beautiful lake. And so to the beach we would go, to Mollymook Beach, and we would set up a, a sort of a mound of, of uh, sand, and on that we would place the, the communion uh, uh, emblems, and also we would have the instruments, and the people would be there ready for worship on the on the Sunday morning, really quite early. And then behind me were the men who had caught the fish, some of them caught it by being thrown to them in the shop, or there were not like Pastor Sean who goes out and just catches volumes of it and then were able to distribute it. But however, we had fish every, every time it was uh, Easter Sunday morning. And so it was a, a wonderful celebration. And so you could see why we dis- made the distinction. And of course, that reminded us of when Jesus was actually um, on the beach after his resurrection and he had already lit the fire. He had the fish on it and he had it all ready. Love that story. I just love that story. And so this afternoon, pray for us. We're eating lamb on, Sunday, on Good Friday, okay? And so um, and we have quite a bit of our family together, which is nice. Um, we were able to have some of them with us this weekend. And so when we're reading the Gospel writer's account of the Last Supper, one incredible truth emerges. It surfaces. Jesus is the person behind it all. And at the supper, Jesus is not the guest, but he's actually the host. Bless you. And Luke chapter 22 in verse 14, it reveals a very tender and a very extremely precious time. And when the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. In my own heart, as a pastor, I just thought, thank heaven for that, that God allowed Jesus to actually have some time of being with his disciples. And I love that part where it says that he reclined. In other words, he wasn't anxious, even though he was the host there. It wasn't that he was running around madly. He reclined. It was setting himself into that place where he had that treasure of being with his disciples just before his crucifixion. And in verse 15, he says to them, I have earnestly, earnestly desired that you eat this Passover. When we look at those words and look at that, that message that it's giving, is that I just love the way that Jesus is saying that he earnestly, earnestly desires to eat the Passover with them before he suffered. And, you know, this morning... Rob will be sharing the communion message with us. And and again, Jesus is like saying, I earnestly want to celebrate this time with you today. I want you to be with me. As I as you take the bread and you drink the cup, I've sense that he will be saying, I want to have this time with you. I want to have that celebration of this meal. I want to bring it to a place where we are intimate and we have a beautiful time together, this morning we can do that. And as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus was the host. He was not the guest. He took. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. And he still does. The Lord's Supper is a gift to you. It's a gift for us to be together in this time Every Sunday morning we have it, and I'm so, so blessed we do. Um, I I enjoy having that time, and and it's beautiful in this church because none of us ever take it lightly. Every one of us actually have a very sincere heart to bring the people of God, like you, to a very special place when we have communion. Now that week following the triumphant journey, through Jerusalem. It's a week of finalities. It was the final visit to the temple for Jesus. It was the final sermon, the final supper, and now we come to a place where it is the most emotional, the final prayer. The Garden of Gethsemane is in shadows. The olive trees are knotted they're gnarled, if you've ever seen olive trees, and especially the one, not that I've seen them in, in, in Jerusalem. I have travelled a lot, but I've never been to Jerusalem, and I know that the olive trees there are huge and also just so beautifully detailed by knots and gnar- gnarls. And if we are in the garden, we would could and imagine that the insects are singing and the leaves are stirring as the wind comes through. And that's him. There's Jesus there. He's in the grove, he's on the ground and one in a sweat-soaked garment, kneeling, imploring, agonising. That's our Jesus. But another sound is heard in the garden, especially within the grove of the trees. And we remember the account gives that the disciples and the apostles were with him. And there they are, snoring. A different sound. Jesus looks across the garden at his deepest and dearest friends and they are asleep. His yearnings in his own heart don't stir them. His distress doesn't move them. And they are tired. Jesus understood the the way that these disciples had, especially in the last week, had to go through with, virtually with what he was going through. I believe he understood their weariness. And that's why it says that he knows and has done, he's been there and he brings us through when we are concerned and anxious and, and, and feeling that all is going to explode on us or whatever. And surely it was a busy week. And especially that which Jesus referred to uh, in, in, the, in, the, in that time of being in the Passover. He was telling them that he was about to suffer. How would they grasp this? You know, like, you know how sometimes we just get so much information, our head is just sort of hurting, and uh, we, it wearies us. I can imagine that the disciples were there like that. Jesus didn't do anything to... Make them feel uncomfortable. This morning I'm actually taking a liberty. A liberty to read an account I have of the Bible, but also there's a book called Max written by Max Licardo, and some of you may even have it on your shelf, and I have it on mine. I like Max Licardo's books. And it's a book called And the Angels Were Silent. This morning I take the liberty because there's a lot I wanted to express and, and when I had read this book many times, but especially this time of the year, it reminded me of, of how I really felt and, and so I thought I'd check with Sean to make sure he doesn't mind Max Licato because I like him and, and, um, and so this morning I just want to read a few pages out of a book, okay? It's nearly midnight when they leave the upper room and descend through the streets of the city. They pass the lower pool and exit the fountain gate and walk out of Jerusalem. The roads are lined with the fires and the tents of Passover pilgrims. Most are asleep, heavied with the evening meal. And those still awake think little of the band of men that are walking down the chalky road. They pass through the valley, ascend the path which will take them to Gethsemane. The road is steep, so they stop to rest. And somewhere within the city walls, the 12th Apostle darts down a street. His feet have been washed by the man he will actually betray, and his heart has been claimed by the evil one that he has heard. He runs to find Caiaphas. The final encounter of the battle has actually begun. As Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem, he sees what the disciples can't. It is here on the outskirts of Jerusalem that the battle will end. He sees the staging of Satan. He sees the dashing of the demons. He sees the evil one preparing for the final encounter. The enemy lurks as a scepter over the hour. Satan is the, most, the host of the hatred, has seized the heart of Judas and whispered in the ear of Caiaphas. Satan, the master of death, has opened the caverns and prepared to receive the source of light, Jesus. Hell is breaking loose. History records it as a battle of the Jews against Jesus and Max Ricardo makes this emphasis. He says it wasn't for him. It was the battle of God against Satan. And Jesus knew it. He knew that before the war was over, he would be taken captive. He knew that before victory would come defeat. And he knew that before the throne would come the cup. And he knew that before the light of Sunday would come the blackness of Friday. He turns and the final ascent to the garden, when he reaches the entry, he stops and he turns his eyes towards the circle of his friends. <clears throat> it will be the last time he sees them before they abandon him. He knows that they will do and what they will do when the soldiers come, and he knows their betrayal is only minutes away. But he doesn't accuse. he doesn't lecture them. instead, he prays. His last moments with his disciples are actually in prayer and the words that he speaks are as eternal as the stars that are above him. Imagine all of this happening. It's worth noting that Jesus chose prayer. He chose to pray for us. These are his words. I pray for these men, but I'm also praying for all people who will believe in me because of the teaching of these men. Father, I pray that all people who believe in me can be one, and I pray that these people can also be one in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus was already acknowledging the fact that those that would betray him and those who would encounter all sorts of things would actually go out and encourage people to believe in Him. How extraordinary! Beautiful stuff. You need to note that in this final prayer, that Jesus actually prayed for you as well. Good to underline it in red, highlight it in lime color, or whatever you do. If maybe we don't do those things these days. And Jesus steps into the garden. And as he did, you were in his prayers. As Jesus dreamed of the day when he looked at heaven, that one day you would be there with him. His final prayer is about you. His final pain is for you. His final passion was for you. He then turns, he steps into the garden and invites Peter and James and John to come. And he tells them that his soul, as it says in Matthew 26, overwhelmed, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he begins to pray. Never has he felt so alone. What must be done? Only he that can do it. No angel can't do it. No angel has the power to break the gates. A man can't do it. No man has the purity to destroy sin's claim. No force on earth can face the force of evil and win, except God, except God. And the spirit is willing, Jesus says, and the flesh is weak, he confesses. And his humanity begged to be delivered from what his divinity could see. Jesus, the carpenter, implores. Jesus, the man, peers into the dark pit and begs. Can't there be another way? And did he know the answer before the question? Did his human heart hope his heavenly father had found another way? But we know he asked that he wanted to get out. But we do know that he also took on the responsibility. We do know that he could have turned his whole back on that mess. But he didn't. Why didn't he? because he saw you. He saw you. He saw me. Right there in the middle of the world that isn't fair, he cast you into a river. He saw you cast into a river of life that you didn't request. He saw you betrayed by those who have loved you. And he saw you with a body that gets sick and a heart that gets weary and grows weak. He saw you In your garden of gnarled trees and sleeping friends, and he saw you staring into the pit of your own failures and the mouth of your own grave. He saw you in your garden of Gethsemane, and he doesn't want you to be alone. He wants you to know that he has been there too. He knows what it's like to be plotted against, he knows what it's like to be confused. He knows what it's like to be torn between two desires. He knows what it's like to smell the stench of Satan. And perhaps most of all, he knows that what it's like to beg God to change his mind and to hear God say so gently but firmly, no. But that is what God says to Jesus. And Jesus accepts the answer. And at that same moment during that midnight hour, an angel of mercy comes over the weary body of the man in the garden. And as he stands, the anguish is gone from his eyes. His fist will clench no more and his heart will fight no more. The battle is won. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au.